Okay, so we are continuing in the virtues. It's been a couple of months since we talked about the last virtue. I think it's three months ago that we talked about justice. And so we're going to talk about the third of the cardinal virtues, uh, which is fortitude. That's kind of its classical name, but also more commonly known as courage. And uh, because we're talking about courage, it allows me to... um, Is this for me? That's fine. (laughs) Uh, It allows me to tell uh, a joke I like. I maybe told it before, but uh, <clears throat> a cowboy appears before St. Peter at the pearly gates. And St. Peter says, did you ever do anything of real merit in your life? And the cowboy thinks and says, well, there was this one time I was out in Wyoming and I came across a biker gang that was harassing a young lady. And I directed them to stop, but they wouldn't stop. And so I went up to the biggest, most tattooed biker there And I pulled his beard, and I smacked him across the face, and I kicked his bike over. And I said, I want you all to leave this young lady alone, or I'll whip all of you. St. Peter was impressed and said, when did this happen? A couple of minutes ago. (laughs) So fortitude is the readiness to fall in battle for the sake of the good. Just like that cowboy who got killed. Fortitude is the readiness to fall in battle for the sake of the good. Now, just to, you know, because we started talking about virtues back in October. So we've been talking about this for a while. What's kind of of the shorthand definition of of virtue or how how do we think about it? Anybody remember? It's effortless good. If something is truly a virtue, it comes naturally and reflexively to do it. Now, uh, one, one important thing to remember about this is that it doesn't mean that there's no effort involved in doing the good, just that the, the will to do the good comes naturally and reflectively or reflexively. So um, I, may, uh, and I may virtuously enact prudence by knowing the wise choice and resolving to do it. But actually enacting that wise choice may take great effort. Uh, there, there may be a lot involved in actually carrying out that choice. And I think we'll see this more clearly with, with fortitude or courage. I may naturally and reflexively will to do the courageous thing, but actually doing the courageous thing may expend a lot of effort. And I may even give up my life in order to do it. Uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Pieper, <clears throat> who writes about the virtues, kind of sharpens our focus and says, all fortitude has reference to death. All fortitude stands in the presence of death. Fortitude is basically, ready, is basically readiness to die, or more accurately, readiness to fall, to die in battle. And so I was thinking about this, and you know, anytime, anytime you talk about a character trait or a virtue and, and you're, you're teaching on it, uh, you have to you have to reflect. Like, am I this kind of person? You know, should I be talking about this at all? And and as I was thinking, I th- I thought I have I have probably twice in my life done something really courageous. Uh, that is that I entered into physical danger reflexively and naturally. My character was in such a, a place that I could naturally and reflexively enter into danger. Uh, this is not me bragging. I can only think of two times. I'm not regularly running into burning buildings. Um, and really, and only one of those was death, a real possibility. The other was the possibility of injury, but probably not death. 
In terms of, of workplace and career, I think I've done courageous things, again, maybe once or twice, where taking a stand on a certain thing that may have resulted in, in job loss or something like that, or had other adverse consequences. But the, the thing is that courage and death go hand in hand, okay? And, and I think there's a scale to this, too. It's not always about physical death. Um, you, you can scale it down a little bit. And so last night after church, I was talking to Matthew Dunham about the play, and, and it occurred to me that Matthew, uh, when the lights went on at the beginning of the play, Matthew was center stage, and he had the first line in the play. And so I said, you know, what was, what was that like to know that it starts with you? And I guess probably because he's, you know, a, a teenager, I thought he was going to say, well, yeah, I was trying real hard not to puke or something like that. And, and what he said surprised me. He said, well, I, I felt a real sense of pride that, you know, we had, we were doing this, we were putting this on, and also a real sense of responsibility. Like I'm, I'm leading off and, you know, I want to, I want to do a good job and, and everybody, you know, kind of follow that. And so, uh, that's, you know, I think that was real courage. I'm sure he did have some nervousness, but there was also a real sense of responsibility and doing a good thing, wanting to do a good job. And talking about fortitude this morning, I think has some natural tie-ins to the sermon last night on, on Daniel 3. And uh, so this is, uh, this is more from... What? Back your oh yeah, so I should I should, I should explain this. Uh, anybody listening to the recording is not going to see this. But uh, so I overslept this morning for one thing. Uh, teaching was not entirely done for two things. And then when I did get it done, realized we had no printer paper in the house at all. And so I was rummaging through scrap paper looking for anything that was eight and a half by eleven, and found these uh, the drawing of a princess. There is a, a car. There's a car here. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully the teaching is better than the packaging that it comes in this morning. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is Peeper again. The essential and highest achievement of, of fortitude is martyrdom. And readiness for martyrdom is the essential root of all Christian fortitude. Without this readiness, there is no Christian fortitude. Readiness to die is therefore one of the foundations of the Christian life. The essential and highest achievement of fortitude is martyrdom, the willingness to give your life in testimony for truth. And yet, and I mentioned this last night, we don't go, we don't go looking for death. We don't go looking for trouble. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't stage a protest. They don't advertise their non-participation in the worship of the image. And those who were in the early church were forbidden by the leaders to report themselves to the authorities that they were Christians. They were not to go tell the authorities that they were Christians because that would result in their death. And so they were not to purposely go and form themselves to the authorities. Uh, there's a, a, a document, I think it was written in the mid-150s, or around 150, uh, called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it talks a little bit about this, and it talks about a man uh, named Quintus, who was very vocal that they should inform themselves to the authorities, that they should essentially turn themselves in as Christians. And it says this, and, and this document was sent out to all the churches. It says, Now there was one man, Quintus by name, a Phrygian recently arrived from Phrygia, who, when he saw the wild beasts, turned coward. 
This was the man who had forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily. The proconsul, after many appeals, finally persuaded him to swear the oath and to offer the sacrifice. For this reason, therefore, brothers and sisters, we do not praise those who hand themselves over since the gospel does not so teach. So we don't necessarily go looking for trouble. Um, Yet we all want to act courageously. And when the time comes, when the moment comes for courage, we want to be able to reflexively and naturally do the courageous thing, right? Most of us, I think, would rather die than turn out to be a coward. We'd rather give our, our lives than turn out to be a coward. And yet, if, if fortitude is a virtue, then it needs to be developed. It needs to be grown. We can't just assume that when the moment comes, we are going to act courageously. We have to be able to develop fortitude in all different areas of our life so that when the moment comes, we can naturally and reflexively enter into it. We can see the brave thing to do and will to do it, even if we have to give up our lives. The point of fortitude is not to suffer injury and death as a good in its own right. That's not a good in its own right. Rather, we suffer injury and death as a means to keep our integrity, to keep our wholeness, to keep intact. That's why we suffer injury and death. Again, the three men, they knew that they would suffer death as a result of their rebellion. Yet they would rather suffer disintegration in the furnace their physical bodies being disintegrated, rather than suffer the disintegration of their selves, of becoming fractured in a fractured allegiance, um, some, you know, a little bit of loyalty to God, but also loyalty to their own selves and saving their own skin. Suffering for its own sake is nonsense. Their suffering is not a good in it for its own sake. That's nonsense. We suffer for the sake of something greater. We're willing to suffer for the sake of something greater, holding on to a greater good. Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it. I don't think that means that we don't love the experience of our lives or the things that are in it. I think, I think it is perfectly um, acceptable, it's appropriate to love our lives and the things that are in it. Um, I love this body. I'm grateful for this body. Without this body, I would not be able to experience God's good creation. I wouldn't be able to experience the goodness of family and uh, the goodness of, of fellowship. But if I am to choose between preserving this body or any aspect of it through unfaithfulness to the Father, Son, and Spirit, well, then the body has to go, right? So it's appropriate for me to, to love my body, to appreciate it, but it cannot, I cannot love my body more than I love Jesus, more than I love faithfulness to him, faithfulness to truth. So I think the proper way to understand what Jesus is saying is whoever loves his life more than me will lose it. That person will lose their life. But naturally, we love our lives. If we didn't love our lives, then we wouldn't be giving anything up through suffering and death. There could be no such thing in, in, as fortitude. Because in putting our lives on the line, there'd be no risk, there'd be no vulnerability. We'd just be throwing something away that we don't like anyway, something that we see no real point of or need for, we'd have no skin in the game. And so because we love our lives, because we love the things that are in it, it is a true wrong when we suffer or are put to death for the sake of holding on to something that's good. 
We, we all good so far? All right. Fortitude also doesn't mean not having any fear. I think we know this. Fortitude doesn't mean not being afraid. Um, in some ways, fortitude presupposes that we are going to be afraid. And so we, we are putting something at risk because we, we do have fear. It's not about having no fear, but it's rather not letting fear force you into doing evil. It's not letting fear force you into doing evil or letting your fear prevent you from doing the good. Okay? So acting courageously means not letting fear force you into doing evil or prevent you from doing the good. We see this in Daniel in two different places. In the story last night, the three didn't let fear force them into doing evil, into false worship. But in Daniel 6, which is kind of a parallel story, Daniel doesn't let fear force him into abstaining from prayer. He keeps up his practice of prayer, and he does it visibly, just as he had done before. So he doesn't let fear force him into the evil of not doing the thing that he had already been doing. Uh, If you've read The Lord of the Rings, raise your hand if you've read The Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, you may remember that at the beginning of Frodo's journey, there's a lot of whining. Frodo does a lot of whining about the ring and about his responsibility to, to, to have the ring. And he says things like this. This is in the span of 10 pages. He says these things. Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, meaning that the, the rise of shadow and uh, his responsibility for the ring. He says, I, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And then he says, even if Bilbo could not kill Gollum, I wish he had not kept the ring. I wish he had never found it and that I had not got it. Why did you let me keep it? Why didn't you make me throw it away or destroy it? So kind of pushing the responsibility off on Gandalf. And then he says, uh, I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? So... He's, he's engaging and whining. He's, he really wished that anybody else could be responsible for the ring other than him. However, once he's on the road, once he's actually left home and resolved to do this thing, and he's on the road and he's in the presence of, of an elf named Gildor and Glorian, he stops wishing it all away. And instead, he says, but where shall I find courage? Where shall I find courage? That is what I chiefly need. So he recognizes it's, there's no point in just wishing for it all to go to, away. Now he knows what he really needs is courage. He settled on making the journey. And you don't think about developing courage when you're still thinking about how you can excuse yourself out of doing the courageous thing. It's only when you've resolved to do it that you start looking for the sources of courage. Fortitude also comes, it comes third in the list. It's an ordered list. So we started with prudence and then justice and then fortitude. And then next month we'll talk about temperance or self-control. And, and there's a reason that fortitude comes third in the list. Fortitude can't just trust itself and can't just trust its motives. You need prudence in order to understand reality. So you need, you need wisdom in order to understand what reality is. And fortitude has to understand things in proportion. You may do something that you really think is courageous, but it may be totally disproportionate to the situation. The situation did not call for it. 
And this is a problem for one of my favorite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia, Reepy Cheep the Mouse. So Reepy Cheep figures into a couple of the stories, and Reepy Cheep is probably the bravest character in the entire Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Narnians come upon a dragon on the beach. And the king has to threaten Reepy Cheep with being bound unless Reepy Cheep will promise not to try to do single combat with the dragon. You know, it's, it's, a, it's ridiculous in, in scale because you have this mouse that's, you know, maybe about this big. It's a talking mouse, so it's bigger than most mice, but yet against a dragon. And Reepy Cheep wants to go and do single combat, and, and the king says, I'm going to have you tied up unless you promise that you will not engage in single combat. And earlier in the book, we're told that Reepy Cheep is, is a pretty good chess player, but a lot of times against Lucy, he'll end up making some flawed move and lose. Uh, and, it, and it says this, <clears throat> Every now and then, Lucy won because the mouse did something quite ridiculous, like sending a knight into the danger of a queen and castle combined. This happened because he had momentarily forgotten it was a game of chess and was thinking of a real battle and making the knight do what he certainly would have done in its place. For his mind was full of forlorn hopes, death or glory charges, and last stands. <laughs> So he's, he's very brave. He has fortitude, but he does not have prudence. And so he will engage in unwise action because uh, he thinks that that's the right thing to do. So uh, if fortitude is not informed by prudence, it can't be fully formed. And after prudence comes justice because fortitude must be informed by justice. You can't do a brave thing if it's for an unjust reason. Unjust actions can't be courageous actions. And so fortitude is based on prudence and justice acting together. And once you, once you know what the wise thing is to do and it's the right thing to do, then you can enter into it courageously. Pieper summarizes it this way, which, which I think is good. He says, if in the supreme test, in face of which the braggart falls silent and every heroic gesture is paralyzed, a man walks straight up to the cause of his fear, and is not deterred from doing that which is good, if, moreover, he does so for the sake of the good, which ultimately means for the sake of God, and therefore not from ambition or from fear for being taken a coward, this man, and he alone, is truly brave. This man possesses the virtue of fortitude. Make sense so far? All right, walking straight up to the thing that you're afraid of, and not for any other reason than for the sake of the good, for the sake of God, doing the thing that needs to be done. Now, I want to talk about two main forms of, of fortitude, ways in which fortitude is expressed. Okay? And the first one is endurance. Uh, the, so the first form is, is endurance. And endurance consists of vigorously grasping the good, clinging to the good while experiencing physical and spiritual suffering. Holding on to the good not letting go, even in the face of physical and spiritual suffering, injury, and even death. For martyrs, it's the good of clinging to the truth of the gospel, even though their bodies were being burned away, even though they were being put to death. But for some who undergo persecution in this country, it's vigorously holding on to the truth and not letting bullies in power force them into living by lies. Talked about this a little bit last night. So vigorously holding on to the truth and not, not accepting a, a false version 
It's possible to live in truth if you're prepared to accept suffering. Even in our, even in our crazy world, which has so much turned completely upside down, it is possible to live by truth if we are willing to accept that suffering goes with it. And again, I'll, just, I'll, I'll refer to that, that last part of the mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It's easy to sing. It's not easy to live by. But if we're, if we're willing to accept that suffering comes with it, we can live by truth. But I want to be clear that endurance is not passively letting bad things happen to us. It's not just kind of having a um, fatalist attitude of, well, whatever will happen will happen, uh, and not just passively letting bad things happen to you. But the, the, the point more is that the man who endures preserves his cheerfulness and his intactness and his serenity of mind in spite of the suffering that he experiences for the good. He maintains that serenity of mind and that cheerfulness. He's probably going to resist the evil being done for him, but he doesn't succumb to sadness and confusion of heart. He's able to preserve uh, that, that sense that all will be well, even as he experiences suffering. Does that make sense? That's, that's the real point of endurance. Patience keeps the man from the danger that his spirit may be broken by grief and lose its greatness. Uh, we don't want to suffer in a way that we, we, we lose our greatness by having our spirit broken. We want that to remain intact as we experience suffering. I think of Jesus on the cross asking the Father to forgive his murderers because they didn't know what they were doing. He didn't lose that, that intactness of self uh, to where he wasn't raining down curses on them. He was praying for them because they didn't know what they were doing. He was praying for his murderers. So uh, if, if fortitude is a virtue that's developed, then how do you develop endurance, right? How do you develop endurance? And I've often wondered, like, how much physical pain, how much physical pain could I take, you know, before I can't take anymore? And that's kind of a scary thought. I don't know if you ever think about that kind of thing. Like, how much, how much physical pain could you take? Uh, and it, and it, it's kind of a scary thought because, um, you know, if, if the air conditioning is not set like exactly right, I, I get kind of cranky about it. So I think, well, man, if I'm, you know, that fluffy that I, you know, I need the, the temperature to be exactly so, like, you know, what would I do under real persecution? Um, and so I, I try to, I try to, to build endurance in, in, in certain ways. So for me, running is part of it, just trying to run past you know, my preset limit, trying to, try, trying to work my body past what, what I think I can do. That's one way in which I do it. Um, fasting instructs my body that I don't need what I think I need when I need it. Uh, we can be kind of on-demand people thinking, well, I'm hungry, now I'm going to eat. Fasting instructs us that that's not so, that we can, we can bypass that for the sake of a greater good. And so just introducing stressors into our lives that, that require us to delay gratification, that require us to, to persist a little bit longer not having something, those are ways to build up endurance. And we purposely in, introduce stressors so as to train ourselves to endure for the sake of the good. Does that make sense? Um, 
The other, the other form of fortitude is attack, or a better name for it is wrath, righteous wrath. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of out of my depth on this. This is more, this is, you know, classically what's taught in terms of fortitude, this, this aspect of wrath. Um, but sometimes, sometimes violence is the answer. Sometimes violence is the answer to put down a wrong that needs to be put down. And um, there's a guy named Tim Larkin. He's a former military intelligence officer. And he wrote a book called When Violence is the Answer. And, and he says that when violence is the answer, when you've run out of all other options to save your life or to save the life of somebody else, when violence is the answer, then it's the only answer. You've, all other options have been exhausted. And so in that situation, you better know, you better know what you're going to do. And uh, so his book, he, he, here's his thesis, okay? His thesis is violence is a tool as a tool, violence is equally effective in the hands of the bad guy or the good guy. And you may have an aversion to violence, but the bad guys don't. The person who acts first, fastest, and with the full force of their body is the one who survives. And each and every one of us is capable of being that person when our lives are at stake. So that's his thesis. Sometimes to put down a real wrong, a real injustice, sometimes violence is the answer. Not always, and, and you know, it depends, again, wisdom will inform what the proportion is supposed to be, and justice will inform whether it's right to use violence in that situation. But wrath pounces on evil. When evil is unchecked and unrestrained, wrath pounces on evil. And Larkin says that one of the reasons that, that many of us turn away from thinking about using violence as a tool on evil is that we... Many of us know that if we were in a situation where it was called for, we don't have a whole lot in the toolbox. We've never really thought, like, what would I actually do if I was in a situation and, and had to use violence? And, I, and I'm not talking about necessarily if you carry, but I'm talking about, like, if you're in close quarters and, you know, you have to do something to defend yourself, to protect yourself. Larkin says that 70%, he does classes, uh, he does self-protection classes. He says 70% of the people who sign up for his self-protection classes did so after surviving a violent attack. So 70%, but it was after the fact. And that's rather too late, right? If you've already survived, it's too late. And so um, Bob is a, a second degree, second degree, right? Black belt in karate. Raise, raise your hand if you didn't know that Bob's a second degree black belt in karate. Which Bob? Bob Schmall. Yeah, yeah Bob Schmall. <laughs> About, he's only a, one, a first degree black belt. Um, and, and so uh, Bob led some uh, karate classes for our kids a couple of years ago, but he's also done self-protection classes for our ladies. And uh, I know that, that for some Christians, it, it's a bit of a conflict to think about using violence. And so I asked Bob if he would, if he would come up and just share a couple of things about when it's necessary <coughs> and how to, how to rightly think about it when you have to use wrath to pounce on evil. So, Bob will come up. I've, this is still gonna record, so. Oh, go, go, So, I'm the violence guy. <laughs> and Bob is like the sweetest person. <laughs> so, uh, we as men are called to be protectors. We hear about um, turning the other cheek, righteous wrath, uh, thou shalt not murder. Um, 
and we've got to walk a fine line between uh, protecting ourselves sometimes in a violent way and, and walking out a Christian life. Um, so this question, uh, I, I had this mold over in my mind quite a few times because when you're learning martial arts, you basically learn how to hurt somebody. And uh, to get to uh, the black belt, you have to learn about 500 different techniques of how to hurt somebody. And then I also have a concealed carry, and so you learn to shoot at a human silhouette. So those things don't, on the surface, appear to be very Christian. Um, so how do you rectify learning how to hurt someone um, and then still live a life uh, dedicated to, uh, to Jesus? So it really comes down to uh, your attitude toward defending yourself and others. Violent retribution must be the last resort. Okay, so uh, turn to the Bible for... Um, for answers, and there's not a scripture that says thou must defend thyself against everything all the time. Uh, it's not there, but um, I'll start with Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the armor of God. I've, uh, I've written out what I call the four W's from uh, putting on the armor of God. Wisdom, wit, words, and weapons. So in the wisdom category is know when to fight back. Um, in Exodus uh, 22, 2-3, uh, if a thief is caught breaking in a house at night and has struck a fatal blow, the homeowner is not guilty of bloodshed, but if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Uh, some principles that go on there. Uh, one, we have a right to own private property, uh, right to defend that property, and the full exercise of the right to defend ourselves depends on the situation. No one should be too quick to use deadly force, even on someone who means to do them deadly harm. So in the middle of the night, when things are confusing, it's dark, um, you find an intruder in your house, um, the law at the time said it's all right to deal uh, a deadly blow. Uh, but during the daytime, it would rather that you um, take, take out the intruder without killing them, um, not, not use a deadly force. So the law was kind of clear on that, but um, I think what, what the intent of the scripture was, was we got to think about any time we use violence. Um, there was a, um, a martial artist named Anthony Smith. He was an MMA fighter, and this burglar unfortunately walked into his house. And, <laughs> and uh, he, this guy was getting ready for, Anthony Smith was getting ready for a, a fight, and he was in the best shape of his life. And he said he was scared to death because someone who breaks into your house at night, they usually have a gun, a knife, a club. They're, they're expecting people to be home. Uh, then he said during the daytime, if they walk in, they're expecting you not to be there. So it kind of goes back to the, the scripture in Exodus that um, it's a little different situation at night than it is during the day. But it makes us think. It makes us think before we act violently. Okay, uh, number two, wit. Um, know how to get away from the situation. Um, getting away from a situation is just as defensive as fighting and getting away from a uh, uh, situation. So uh, I went to Luke 4.30. Uh, they got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill, which the town was built in order to throw him over the cliff. But Jesus pressed through the crowd and went on his way. So this was a great self-defense. There was a mob taking Jesus to a cliff, and I don't know if he just kind of walked through them or the Holy Spirit... <laughs> moved him or what, but he got out of there. He defended himself by leaving the situation. He used his mind. 
Um, number three, words. Using your words to calm down an attacker or to defuse a situation. Uh, Apostle Paul engaged in self-defense on occasion, although nonviolently. When he was about to be flogged by the Romans in Jerusalem, Paul quietly informed the centurion with a scourge that he, Paul, was a Roman citizen. The authorities were immediately alarmed and began to treat Paul differently, knowing they had violated Roman law even by putting him in chains. Paul had used a similar defense in Philippi after he was flogged in order to secure an official apology from those who violated his rights. So by using his words, he was able to defend himself. Um, last category, weapons. Using your body or a weapon to fight or flight. In Nehemiah, when the Israelites were building a wall around Jerusalem, the workers wore a sword on their belt. The men carrying the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. So you think about them building this wall, and the guys that were actually building the wall had their sword right at their, at their belt on their side. The other guys were carrying bricks, one hand and a sword in the other hand. They were expecting to defend themselves. Um, also, Luke 22, 36 uh, Jesus said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay, so even Jesus was telling these guys, arm yourself. Make sure you have a sword. Even if you have to take your cloak and sell it, and be cold, but you still have a sword. Um, so it reminds me of a, there was a church shooting in Texas in 2019. Um, a guy walked into a congregation, and he had a, a coat on, and he pulled a gun out and started shooting. Uh, two men immediately pulled their guns out, fired and killed him. Um, I think two people died. One of them was one of the guys with a gun, and the other guy with a gun, uh, he acted so quickly, if you ever watch the video, and I, I don't recommend it, uh, but he acted so quickly and shot him and took out the intruder but in the interview later, he said he had to wait a little bit for the crowd to clear. So I think uh, the lesson that I got from that is we got to be prepared all the time. Um, the, um, let's see. Yeah, they were just ready, ready to use the weapon very quickly. Um, then just some last things here. Defending your self-defense means that you are being attacked. So um, anytime you're being attacked, you are in a self-defense mode. Truly defending yourself is removing yourself from a dangerous situation, whether the situation presents itself immediately or you prepare for something that can happen later. We lock our doors at night because we're preparing for maybe the possibility of somebody walking in our house. Um, the way you carry yourself, make yourself look strong, capable, not a pushover. The way you walk and present yourself as courageous uh, paying attention to your surroundings. Don't be alone, um, especially women. Uh, walk with the armor of God. If we put on the armor of God and walk that way, we're going we're gonna to project to other people that this is somebody that maybe you don't want to mess with. Uh, that's, that's a type of self-defense. Um, coming out of a situation with your life safely intact is a very powerful form of self-defense. Um, this here is somebody comes up to you with a gun and wants your wallet. Give him your wallet. It's not worth your life. It's not worth trying to trying to uh, take the gun off him. Um, yeah, all that stuff can be replaced, and that is a form of self-defense. Um, to defend ourselves with a violent response is when we have no other option. Um, it's always best in a situation if if you're quicker than your opponent, 
but sometimes a person will start something with you first. When that happens, then you need to respond to them, possibly in a violent way. Make a decision about self-defense um, ahead of time. If we're in a, a church group like this, somebody comes in, starts shooting up a place, and then you make a, make a decision now, are you gonna run or are you gonna tackle this guy? Uh, if you wait to make the decision when it happens, it's gonna be too late. And it's just something that uh, you have to do with your own conscience. So how do we get any kind of experience with this? This is really tough because, like Kelly said, we don't have a lot in our toolbox sometimes. Um, I recommend for fathers, wrestle with your kids. Get them on the ground, beat each other up a little bit. Uh, it, it does show you some restraint also um, <laughs> because you don't want to hurt your kids. But that, that teaches a lot to people, to both uh, fathers and, and sons. Um, I do recommend getting a concealed carry permit. Uh, I don't know if you like guns or not, but you could be in a situation one time where you need to use it to defend yourself or your family. Um, there's a lot of classes that you can take for that. Uh, finally, I'll go ahead and leave with this, and I, I don't have the reference for the author, but um, the Bible never forbids self-defense, and believers are allowed to defend themselves and their families, but the fact that we are permitted to defend ourselves does not necessarily mean we must do so in every situation. Knowing God's heart through reading his word and relying on its wisdom comes from heaven, from James 3.17. It will help us know how to best respond to situations that might call for self-defense. Thank you. That's it. Thank you, Bob. I, I asked Bob if he would do that. I think it was about 5 o'clock last night. So in between five and, and this morning, uh, Bob put that together. So thank you very much. Uh, he did have printer paper, yes. Clean printer paper, yeah. He did, yeah. Um, I, I say this jokingly, but also seriously. Never, like, sneak up on Bob and jump on his back. Don't, don't do that. This is not a good idea. And he would tell you, no, not personal experience, thankfully. Um, one, one thing I want to, uh, what Bob was talking about words, uh, one thing that Larkin says is that, uh, yeah, a lot of times, you know, if you can use words to get out of something, then by all means do. But, you know, if, if two guys are coming and their hoods are down and they've got knives drawn, there's no, uh, you're beyond words at that point. Then you, just, you have to figure out how to save your life. So, um, so again, thank you. We're kind of wrapping up here, uh, endurance and wrath. Are, are two ways in which fortitude is expressed. Oh, one, one other thing I want to say. Do you remember about how many years ago it was when you did the self-protection class for the ladies? It was in 2015, 2016. Okay. We might, we might want to refresh that. We've had a lot of ladies come in, and it'd just be good, a good refresher. So we may want to, if you're, if you're willing, we may look at, at doing one of those sometime sure. soon. So, um, so I'll, close, I'll close with this. In, uh, in Lewis's The Last Battle, so the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's about the end of Narnia, and King Tyrion, who's the last of the kings of Narnia, and a small group of Narnians, they're horribly outnumbered against the enemy, and they have little to no chance of success. And yet they resolve to take the adventure that Aslan gives them. That's how, that's how they put it. They're going to take the adventure that Aslan gives them. And at one point, what I think is the most, maybe the most powerful thing in the whole Chronicles, uh, a dying prophet tells the king, 
He says, remember that all worlds end and that a noble death is treasure no one is too poor to buy. Remember that all worlds end and a noble death, a noble death is treasure that no one is too poor to buy. All right. Questions, thoughts?